beautiful humans. Welcome to today's episode of Role Models, Juicy Conversations with Beautiful Humans. My name is Jennifer Norman, founder of the Human Beauty Movement and your host. Okay, so I am fangirling pretty hard right now because my guest today is none other than Gabe Adams Wheatley. Gabe is a makeup artist, he's a singer, songwriter, a dancer, a social media influencer. He is an unrelenting optimist, which I absolutely adore about him. He lives life without limits, or as he likes to say, truly limitless. <laughs> Welcome, Gabe. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. So you have a pretty fascinating story. So I would love for you to tell everybody all about yourself, what your origin story is. Yes. So I was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, without arms or legs. And my birth mother, when she found out, she knew that she would not be able to care for me or give me the life that she knew that I could possibly have. So she put me up for adoption. My story traveled all the way across to the United States, here to Utah, where my adoptive mom was going through the grocery store. And she was nine months pregnant with her 11th. And she was going through the checkout and the cashier was like, what number is that? And she's like, oh, it's just my 11th. And she's like, oh, no way. That's so exciting. And my adoptive mom was like, yeah, it is. And then she's like, well, you know what? I know a family that's adopting their 13th child that's from Brazil. But there's also a boy that is coming that was born without arms and legs that needs a family. And my adoptive mom was like, oh, I would take him in a second, not even knowing how she was going to even care for me or anything like that. And so she went home and since she lives in a very religious belief um, life with um, being LDS, also known as the Mormons, um, she went home and she prayed about it and the angel Gabriel popped up in her head and then she turned on the TV station and it was talking about the angel Gabriel. And then my adopted dad was a seminary teacher in the school system. And he came home from work one day and she's like, we need to adopt this little boy. And he says, Janelle, we already have our 11th child coming. We do not need to adopt another child. And she's like, no, we really do. I just need you to go pray about it. And in the Mormon belief system, they have a temple that they go to. And he went there and he had a spiritual revelation of me and the baby that my mom was pregnant with growing up together and becoming best friends. And so he just instantly knew that it was something he needed to get on board with. And so he went home and told her and they called the adoption agency the next day. And the lady said, sorry, Mrs. Adams, you are not a good candidate to adopt. You have too many children. Your husband did not make enough money. It's just not going to be a good fit for what this little boy needs. And my adoptive mom just instantly turned back around to her on the phone and said, you know what? We will adopt this little boy and God will intervene in our behalf and make it possible. Just you wait. And the lady on the phone kind of just laughed and said, okay, whatever you say, have a nice day, bye. And then weeks later, they brought it up to the board of directive at the adoption agency and to the hospitals and everything. And within seconds, everybody in the room just stood up and said, you know what, we're on board. Let's bring this little boy to the United States. Let's get him adopted with this family. And so they sent a letter to my family and said, the Lord has intervened in your behalf. You will become the parents of this little boy. And things just started to fall into place. One thing after another, the American Airlines called and said that they would fly me or my parents anywhere around the world to bring us together as a family. The Brazilian courts called and said that they would bypass the six weeks residency requirement and just let me come straight to the United States to be with my family as soon as possible. 
and just all miracles and everything. And it's all because my mom did not give up with the instant of knowing that she was supposed to be my mom. Oh my gosh. I'm trying not to cry right now because (laughs) your story is so compelling. Number one, because God bless your parents. God bless your mom and your dad, as well as this is hard. I also am adopted. Some people live with that pain of feeling like they were unloved, but then you turn around and know that when you start rewriting your story, when you start getting to the place where you recognize look how many people were rooting for you. Look how much love was able to get you to where you are today. And look at the determination and how God works in such mysterious ways, right? And and really has this amazing magnificence of compassion and love and just this outpouring of willingness to serve. That to me is what life is all about. I'm just curious because I've heard that there have been definitely some values and lessons that your family instilled in you from an early age it wasn't easy it wasn't all like you know let's be easy on him right (laughs) correct so when my family first decided that they were going to adopt me they already had 10 children that were well above the age of I think 13 14 and stuff like that and they just sat them all down with the aunts and uncles and grandparents and just said we're not going to baby this child when he comes into this family he's going to be required to do everything that we all do It may take him a little bit longer, but we just need to be patient and willing to teach him and learn with him and grow. When I first came into this family, they lived in a split level home. And my mom had always seen a life of independence long before myself and those around her. And so she actually got a lot of rude things tossed towards her direction because people thought that she was being too tough to a person with disability and that she should be a little bit nicer, a little bit more loving, blah, 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 blah. But looking back at it now as a young adult who is now 23, living on my own, married, successful, has my own job, has my own life, away from my parents and everything, I respect everything that she put me through to get me to where I am today. And so going back to the home that we lived in, it was a split level home. And so I needed to learn how to go up and down those stairs and nobody was going to carry me up and down those stairs. And so there were lots of times that we'd sit up those stairs for hours and hours and hours. I'd be in tears. She'd be in tears. And finally, we'd just give up at some points because we just were not seeing eye to eye. And then it wasn't until I think I was in the seventh grade that it really clicked that, you know, I don't want my mom doing every little thing for me and nobody else's mom does every little thing for them. So I think it's about time that I take the reins and I see my own potential in becoming independent. And then it got to the point with my mom where she's like, you're a little too independent now. Let me help you. And I'm like, no, you raised me to do it on my own. I'm going to take the time to do it. And she's like, but it will just take me two seconds where it's going to take you five minutes. I'm like, I don't care. That also is a great lesson for a lot of people who are either used to be coddled or they want to be coddled. They want life to be easy for them. And they don't realize that the struggle, it's kind of like what they say, no grit, no pearl. You know, you almost Mm -hmm. have to go through those really hard times. And sometimes it sucks, right? Sometimes it really is painful and you feel like it's just not worth it. But then you realize, wow, look at how it helps to shape you into a stronger person going forward. Now, aside from that, you're openly gay, non-binary, and so many people struggle with their sexuality and identity. I mean, it can be a really tough road for people. And I think a lot of people could benefit from hearing that part of your story. So, you know, feel free to share as much as you like about your early days and your journey of understanding your identity or arriving at self-acceptance and self-love. 
While I did grow up in a very Mormon LDS religion, home mm -hmm. with my dad being a very public figure in the school system of being a seminary teacher, and my mom was always a part of the churches. Growing up being gay was very, 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 very difficult because they never wanted to accept it or believe it or let it be true. Mm -hmm. And we had so many discussions growing up because I knew at such a young age, by the time I found out that I was really gay, I was in the second grade oh. because I had this crush on this kid at the playground. And he ended up being a new classmate in my class the following year. And we sat right next to each other. And I remember going home and telling my older sisters one time, and I, well, do you think he's cute? I'm like, yeah, I think he's cute. And they're like, well, what do you think of that? And I was like, but it's not okay. And they're like, what do you mean it's not okay? And I was like, I shouldn't like boys. And they're like, no, you can like whoever you want. So it was always my sisters and my siblings having my back with being who I was wanting to be, but my parents being who they were at the time yeah. and not wanting to understand it, not wanting to allow it or anything. We're always so against it. And we would have conversations like it's always a marriage between a man and a woman. It's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. Why would you ever want to be with a man? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I was like, you don't get it. This is who I am. This is who you raised me to be. And so it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I was getting ready to move out of their house. And I had been crying myself to sleep for years and years and years because I was constantly having to be someone I wasn't. I was also starting to step into the public eye with being a dancer, social media, public speaking. And there was one time where my dad was my manager for motivational speaking, and I was doing a meet and greet afterwards. And somebody came up to me and they whispered in my ear and said, I feel like you're not giving us your full truth. And I feel like you're hiding something. Mm -hmm. And it just instantly ate me alive. And it was something that I never forget. And it was just something that made me feel so disgusted with myself that mm -hmm. I couldn't be honest. And people were starting to see that and feel that. Uh -huh. And so I would still go to the church sometimes just because I really loved hearing other people's testimonies, but I did not like hearing the old teachings mm -hmm. of the church and everything because it just didn't really line up with who I was or who I wanted to be or who I was going to be in. And I knew that there was never going to be a chance of that happening in that religion. Mm -hmm. And so the only way I felt a connection in that church was hearing other people's testimonies and hearing what they struggled with, with a daily basis and how they would come and pray and stuff like that and get their own benefit from it. And so one day I was going to church and there are three different meetings in the Mormon church where you have sacrament and then you have Sunday school and then you have either young women's, young men's, early society and all these other things that you're supposed to go to. And I usually would head out after sacrament or Sunday school because none of it really applied to me after that. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting ready to leave one day and my mom caught me and I'm 19 years old. I've graduated high school. And so I was like, what's the deal? I'm grown up. Let me just give my own thing. I'm leaving. Yeah. And she's like, well, did you pray about it? And I was like, you did not just ask me if I prayed about it. And it just made me so furious. I still ended up leaving. And I went home and I sent her this long text and I was like, I'm gay in all capital letters. And I was like, and I'm not changing. I'm never going to change. I'm done bowing down to you and dad and your wishes mm -hmm. and your Mormon beliefs. It's not me. It's never going to be me. You raised me to follow my heart and to be who I am. But the second I do that, you get mad at me and shun me and tell me that it's something I can't be in, and I'm done. Mm -hmm. So if you want a relationship with me after this moment, then that's on you. 
but from here on out, I'm done trying and goodbye. And then instantly she came home from church. She was sobbing and she just went to her room for the rest of the night. And then the next morning she came into my room and I could tell that she had been crying. And she just says, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And she's like, okay, well, I just want to first off, start off with saying, I'm sorry. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, I'm sorry for all the times that I told you that you couldn't be who you wanted to be. I'm sorry for making you feel like you're a disgrace or making you feel like I don't love you or that I won't love you. I'm sorry for never understanding or wanting to understand. But from here on out, I want you to know that I do love you. And I don't want to lose you as a son or as a friend or as a person in my life. I want to be there when you get married. I want to meet the person that you marry. I want to be in your life after you get married. When you decide to have children, I want to be the mother of your grandchildren. I want to be in your life. Please don't shut me out. Please let me come to understand you and who you want to be. And that was huge because all the other conversations that we had before then were nothing like that. And then minutes after my dad had come into my room and pretty much just stated all the same things, which was very, very, very huge for him to say that because he raised nine other sons mm -hmm. that were all athletes and straight and everything he could have ever imagined. And then to have a gay son who was also adopted not be what he wanted was mm -hmm. very, very hard for him. And I don't think he really even truly came around until I started dating my husband and he saw the connection that my husband and I had and that it wasn't what they thought it was to be. And because I know that a lot of people have this stipulation that for gay people, it's all about sex and passing around STDs and AIDS and not having a real authentic connection and relationship and a love life that's more than just the sex and more than just the hookups yeah. and dirty texts and stuff like that. And I feel like it was up to me in that moment to prove to them that it was way more than what they thought it could ever be. And I remember I started getting into makeup when I was in high school and my parents were like, you're not doing makeup. You do not need to wear makeup. But then I joined the dance company team and I was like, well, I need to wear makeup to be on the dance team <laughs> and to be on stage. So thank you. And so I started wearing makeup here and there. And one time I put makeup on and it was just blush all over my entire face. And I went shopping with my brother, who's the same age as me. And the entire time we went out, he's like, are you mad? And I was like, no, I'm not mad. And he's like, you look really upset. And I was like, no, I'm not mad at all. And then we get into the car and he's like, if you're going to put makeup on, at least learn how to put it on right. And I was like, okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and even my parents, I remember the first time they saw me photographed in makeup. I had gone to this event in California and it was taken with Getty images and it's the worst picture I've ever seen in my life now, <laughs> but I was so happy to wear makeup on the red carpet and everything, but the foundation was not the right shade. The concealer was not the right shade or anything. And my lashes were falling off, but um, <laughs> my youngest sister was still living with my parents and she texted me. And she said, mom's crying right now. And I was like, why is she crying? And she's like, she just saw you in the picture of you wearing makeup. And I was like, okay, what about it? And she's like, she's not happy about it. And I was like, why does she care? And she's like, she didn't raise you to wear makeup like this. And I was like, me wearing makeup 
has nothing to do with her. Like this has everything to do with me and my confidence and my life and everything else. And so I called her and I was like, hey, I heard you didn't like that I was wearing makeup. And she's like, well, where did you hear that from? And I was like, I got little birds everywhere. And she's like, oh, okay. And I was like, so what's going on with that? And she's like, I just don't think that boys should be wearing makeup or men. And I was like, you see those actors and actresses on TV? They're all wearing makeup. You see those news anchors that are males? They're wearing makeup. You see those people that you go watch in plays? They're wearing makeup and tights. Mm-hmm. Like there's no difference. Makeup is just makeup. It's a way of me showing my creativeness, letting out my emotions and just really getting past something with the type of artistry that is out there. And she's like, oh, okay. And then from that moment on, she's always texting me, asking me what's the best foundation for her to use? What contour <laughs> should she use? What's going to help her skin? And I was like, oh, now you want to know. Around, right? <laughs> yeah. And then my dad even had a huge turnaround because there was one point where I put on mascara and going to a family party when I was way younger. And he found out and he's like, the day you wear mascara again is the day I die. And I was like, oh, okay. And then a few months ago, I did an article with the magazine and I was talking about how when I put on mascara, I have to put it in this very uncomfortable position to put it on. And I'm getting it all over my lips. I'm getting it all over my face. And it's very difficult, especially when I'm filming for a video because I have to rinse that all off in between takes. Yeah. And he's like, well, is there any way that I could like build something to make it easier for you to apply it? And I was like, wait, you want to help me put mascara on? <laughs> <laughs> but it's very, very cool to see their whole turnaround and their supportiveness now. And I feel so lucky because I do know that there's so many people out there that have it a way worse than I could ever even imagine. Yeah. And I'm very, very, very lucky to have them now. Thank you so much for being so open about your story. It stands to reason that kids are their parents' best teachers. I mean, if we think about the dogma and the religion and the fact that your father was in the seminary, like, and your mother, that just like the whole entire upbringing, everything that they had learned, their whole entire belief system revolved around a certain way of life and a certain way of being. And here you come, this wonderful ball of energy, and you just disrupt everything that they know about their beliefs and what is the way to live out your own truth. And it's not easy for them. And so I have great compassion for people who lived just like your parents did and were brought up in a certain way, which was very restrictive. You can only imagine how much that they had to keep holds within themselves and not be true to themselves in a matter of respect because of what other people might think of what their religion is telling them is right and wrong. And then recognizing that you, by just you continuing to be who you are, that's when you shine your brightest. And yet everybody is going to recognize that eventually it's going to take some time, right? But your dad wants to build you something to to make your (laughs) mascara go on easier. I mean, that is incredible that is an amazing amazing story how were your other brothers about your transition and about you starting to wear makeup um my brothers always knew at a young age that I was gay and they always teased me about it and gave me a hard time and everything but they all showed up to my wedding and I honestly when I was younger never thought that any of my siblings would really be at my wedding 
I mainly thought that maybe just my four sisters would be there and because those were the ones that I was closest to. And so for years and years and years, when I would dream about my fairy tale wedding, I always imagined it without my family and just my four sisters. Oh. And I remember leading up to the wedding, I was so nervous because I was like, I don't know if I asked my family to come and stuff. And then when I started dating my husband, I was like, oh, no, they're definitely going to come to my wedding. Yeah. And one of my brothers was kind of taken back seeing my dad at my wedding. And there was, I guess, a conversation that was passed by the two of them at the wedding that I didn't hear about, which is good. I didn't hear about it until I was on my honeymoon. One of my older brothers called my dad out and was like, why are you here at this wedding? And my dad's like, why wouldn't I be here at this wedding? And he's like, you never, ever, ever supported Gabe in being gay. So why are you here now? And he's like, well, I support him now and I've changed. And it made me super emotional hearing on my honeymoon because I had actually asked my dad to give a speech at my wedding. And I know that was probably very, very hard for him to go against his beliefs and stand up there at my wedding and condone what we were doing and allow it and everything. And I know that's so silly to even say that it had to be condoned or allowed, but for a white, straight male that has been brought up in such a religious, strong religious background to now get up and be there for his gay son is huge. And I just really, really, really respect my dad and that aspiration of doing that for me. It reminds me of Footloose to a certain degree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious because since he is probably a staple in his community, has it had any impact on the Mormon community at large as far as openness towards those who are gay or who have a different gender identity than the norm? Honestly, I don't know how it's affected my parents' religion now. And their people in their ward, so to speak, um, mainly just because I've completely left the Mormon church overall because of the hurt that I felt from it growing up and what they've done. Now, I don't feel like there's really been much of a change. And I feel like there's been so many people that I know and that I love that I've even grown up with and gone to school with that have ended up taking their own lives because they felt like they would never, ever be loved or supported within their families or the church. And it just became too much of a pressure of them thinking that that just was all I could ever be. And it makes me so sad. And that's why I continue living my life and being who I am in hopes that it supports them in their efforts of wanting to be who they wanted to be, but couldn't be. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you're a supporter of Love Loud and having familiarity with Love Loud and the understanding that it is really speaking up so that we can open up the conversation about being queer, being gay, particularly in the Mormon community where Dan Reynolds is from, just recognizing that I believe probably one of the highest per capita suicide rates among teens in Salt Lake City in Utah because of the strife and the struggle with the Mormon religion and their belief that it is evil or it is perverse and kids just not being able to be okay with their own sexual identities. Yeah, so true. And just going to the Love Loud event, it was my first time this year. I was super honored to be a part of it. And I was also super emotional seeing all those beautiful young teenagers there and that have their parents there, their friends there, their grandparents there supporting them 
and wanting to understand and support them in that way was just so huge and so memorizing to me because I know growing up, I probably would have never had that opportunity with my own parents. It is really, really sad to know that here in Salt Lake City, Utah, we have the highest rates of suicide just within our teenagers. And I know that there was a time in my own life when I was a teenager that I almost took my own life because of thinking that there was no way of doing two and two and being what I wanted to be. I had to be inside the line or outside of the line. And if I was outside of the line, I was completely crucified and was in the outer darkness, so to speak. And I wasn't going to have my family. I wasn't going to have my church. And it was all that I ever knew at the time. And it's very, very hard at that age to understand that Mm -hmm. there are so many other people outside of that world that are ready to support you, love you, be there for you, listen to you, and cheer you on as you have your fails and your triumphants all throughout life. That's why I love that I have my platform on TikTok, where I'm able to show people that, yes, I have a disability. Yes, I'm gay. But none of that matters at the end of the day. I'm still human and you're still human. And I think in today's society, we bring social media into so many things, whether that's marketing, whether that's entertainment, whether that's a getaway place for some people. But there's still so much bullying that goes on that is also bringing suicide to people and bringing people down and making them feel like they can't be their true selves. I remember when I first came out, I posted it on my Twitter account and six months later it went viral. And it wasn't the fact that I had come out as gay, but it was the fact that I had no arms and no legs and people were making all these memes and all these jokes. And it was really the first time that I was really getting heat on social media for just being myself. And I was on tour doing a speaking engagement thing in schools. And I just instantly broke down in my hotel room. And I remember calling my sister and my brother because they're really knowledgeable about Twitter. And I was like, why am I going viral on Twitter right now? And so they looked at it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. You need to not worry about it. But it just kept getting reviewed and likes and reviewed and likes, blah, 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 over and over and over again. So I finally just turned my phone off. But then I turned it back on. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to sit in this anymore. I want to pick myself up and get back up in the saddle. And so I went onto YouTube and I looked up motivating videos. And the first thing that popped up was Nick Vujicic, who has no arms and no legs. And he was talking about how in life we're put in this world as seeds and people are either going to water us or pour oil on us because they either want to watch us grow or they want to watch us die. And then it came into my mind as every day we wake up with the choice. We wake up to choose to get ready. We wake up to choose to get our hair done. We wake up to put new clothes on. We wake up to choose what we want to eat for breakfast. We choose how people make us feel. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. We choose how they let us feel. And so it became a bigger thing to where I'm no longer going to let them choose how I feel. I'm going to pick that for myself. And I want to spread that to everybody on social media that nobody gets to choose how I feel and nobody gets to choose how you feel. You get to take away at the end of the day how you feel and you own up to it. I think that that is such priceless information. It is so valuable because you are exactly right. The people who are going to be 
spreading that kind of negativity or that kind of meanness. It's more about them and how they feel about themselves. It's a reflection on their own values or their their lack of value of themselves than it is about you or anybody that they might be being mean to. You're exactly right as far as being complicit in being offended or being upset by what other people might say or what other people might do. I think that there's always this choice, as you were saying, about whether or not if something happens, it can make you bitter or it can make you better. It is a choice. It's a choice every day to wake up and say, you know what, today is going to be the best day of my life. Today, I choose to be better. Today, there are going to be more opportunities for me to prove what I can do over what I can't do. And I think that you are so courageous and you have such an ability to be able to inspire so many people because of those choices that you make every day. And I think that there is a falsehood to say, yeah, you're going to be completely bulletproof every day, 24 seven. No, you're human. There are going to be better days and there's going to be days that really suck. <laughs> but, exactly. but you know, so long as there's more days where you can say, okay, I think today I'm going to be able to get it together. Look at the amazing things that I can do and what my body can can do over what it can't do. Um, Yeah, yeah. And speaking of can do, oh my goodness, you talked about dancing. I saw some videos of you skateboarding. I'm like, what can't this dude do? You are just amazing. You are just amazing. I I think it's extraordinary about all the things that you've challenged yourself and you've risen up to say, okay, what next? What next? How was it that first of all, you decided that you liked to dance and that you were going to join a dance team? Tell me about that. I was in the seventh grade when I first started dancing, and it was because I was constantly getting looked at as a kid in the wheelchair, and nobody was asking me to hang out. Nobody was wanting to really be my friend, really, because they thought that it was a mental disability as well because of having no arms and legs, and they weren't really open to the idea of getting to know me for me, and when I was in elementary, it was always, oh, I'll be Gabe's friend for the day because I know that the news is coming in. And we can be besties for that day. And then the day after, it's like, "Mm, no, I don't really want to be your friend. And it's like, oh, okay. And so it wasn't until I did the talent show where people kind of opened up to the idea of, oh, he can actually get out of his wheelchair and he can actually walk. He can actually do other things without it. And maybe he doesn't need it when we go hang out. And so then I was able to make a really good group of friends throughout junior high. And then I got into high school. And I was like, all right, well, I'm sitting in a wheelchair all day long, and this is too much. I need to get out because when I'm at home, I'm not in a wheelchair all day. And so to be in a wheelchair for that many hours is a lot on my body. And because when I was younger, my mom raised me to not be attached to my body if I didn't need to be attached to it. And when I got into high school, I was taking a dance class for one of my periods. And there was a girl in my class that came up to me and she's like, hey, there's going to be a dance company tryout. You should audition. And I kind of just laughed at her and I was like, I am not trying out for the dance company too. That's real cute. Um, And she's like, no, I'll audition with you. And I was like, no, I'm not going to audition. And she's like, no, really, you should. And I was like, okay, fine. I will just for kicks and giggles. And so I got all ready for the audition and I lived about two blocks from the high school and I had gotten a brand new electric wheelchair and it was almost dead because of the school day. So I drove home and I plugged it in. And then I was running late to the dance audition. And so my phone used to be on this like lanyard thing because it was easier for me to use in school and stuff. And so I just threw it over the wheelchair and it got caught in the wheel and then the motor. But I didn't stop because I knew that I was late. So I was like, I can forget about my phone. It's fine. It's fine. And so you can hear my phone just rattling in the wheelchair as I'm driving down the halls. 
And then I get there and then Kate gave you're in the first group in the front of the line. I was like, what? They had already taught all the choreography. And I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. And so you're like, all right, dancers, take your places. Five, six, seven, eight, begin. And I just sit there and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I look over there, I'm like, she's really good. She's really good. And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, they're definitely making it. They're definitely make it. I should probably just walk out right now. And so I got done with the audition and it was a three-day audition. And so I go home and I tell my mom, I'm like, I'm not going to finish auditions. That was embarrassing. And she's like, no, you just barely started. You're not going to give up now. And I was like, no, like, I don't think I even have a shot. And she's like, no, you're going to go back there tomorrow and you're going to give it your all. I was like, okay, sounds good. So the next day before auditions, I'm at lunch and I hear these two girls talking behind me. And they're like, they're only going to put him on the team because he's handicapped. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? And I was like, I don't even want to be on the team then. I don't want to be some poster child that they need to put on their dance team because it will make them look better and make them all feel better about themselves. I don't need that. And so I went home again and I told my mom, I was like, I'm not going to do it. Not if they want me to be some poster child. That's not what I need. It's not what I want. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, that's not what you're going to be let's go talk to the dance coach. And I was like, no, that's so embarrassing. And she's like, no, let's go. So we went and we talked to the dance coach and I'd already known the dance coach for half the school year because I was taking a dance class. And she's like, no, I'm not going to put you on the dance team because I feel sorry for you. If I put you on the dance team, it's because you'll work hard to keep it. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then the next day we had auditions and I'd stayed up all night practicing the choreography. I'd called my cousin that was a dancer. I talked to my neighbor that was already on the dance team. And I just made sure that the dance was good and that I had it all. And I went and I gave it my all. And then I went home and waited for callbacks and everything. And I went back over to school and on the way over, I started to get emotional because it was something that I worked so hard for. And it was something that I did for myself. I didn't have my mom sitting there holding my hand. She wasn't at every dance class and stuff like that. It was something that I did for myself. And it was something that I set out for myself to go do. And so I go over to the school building and all the kids are like smiling and they're like giving me all these looks and everything. And I was like, what? And then I go over and my name's at the very top of the list. I was like, oh my gosh, I made it. And then I just remember (laughs) sobbing the whole way home. And uh, then we ended up moving halfway through that dance year. And so I was so frustrated because it was something that I really wanted. And uh, our parents were like, no, it's going to be okay. You'll find another dance studio thing to do where we move. And I was like, yeah, but I worked so hard to be a part of this one. She's like, it's okay. And so we moved and I wasn't taking dance or anything for another half of the school year. And then I went and did a speaking thing for this youth camp. And the kids were at the rivalry high school that I went to. And they're like, hey, would you love to come do a dance with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I did the dance with them. And the coach came up to me. She's like, would you like to be on the dance company team? And I was like, well, yeah, I'd love to. But I don't want you to just give it to me. Like, I want to audition, have a fair audition. And she's like, really? And I was like, yeah, I don't want it to just be given to me. A lot of other kids tried out for this team the year before me and everything. And they either got on or didn't get on. I don't think it's fair. And she's like, okay. And so she gave me an audition. She brought in like the principal of that school and another teacher and the dance company captain and stuff. And so I did the audition. They gave me pointers and everything. 
and then I was on the team and I choreographed about seven dances and we took two of them to state. One of them we took second place. We would have taken first place, but my partner dropped me and the judges were like, um, you really played off that drop, but it looked like a drop. So we're going to mark you some points down for that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, bummer. But dancing's always been a huge part of my life because it's been something that I've been able to express myself in. It's been something that's a huge shock to people because they don't expect someone like me to be a dancer or to be somewhat good at it and be able to stay on beat and be able to stay in line with all the other dancers and everything like that. And that's what I really like about it. Oh, that is amazing. Well, congrats on that. Those are fond, fond memories. Now, it must be, it's almost like one of those balancing acts where you don't want people to feel sorry for you. You don't want to get these amends or these special conditions because of the fact that you don't have arms and legs. But yet there are certain things where accessibility does matter and you want to make sure that people who have any kind of physical or mental disability have a seat at the table to a certain respect. Is there a specific line that you can identify where you're like, people are either being unfair or society is being unfair versus, well, I don't want them to just give me handouts because of my condition. It's always such a tough line to really comment on because I am a person with a disability. I've grown up with other people with different types of disabilities as well. And my senior year of high school, I was actually a peer tutor for disabled students. At first, when I was in that class, the teacher thought that I needed to be in that classroom because of my physical disability. And I was like, no, I'm here mentally and everything. Like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, okay. And she's like, well, then how about you just be a peer tutor and take kids to their classes and take notes for them and make sure that they're on their best behavior and everything. And it actually really opened my eyes to see other people with different types of disabilities and how they were treated by other peers and teachers and stuff like that, or how they looked at themselves. When I grew up, I grew up with a 504 aid because I did need certain help in the classroom, whether that was dropping my pencil or getting things in and out of my backpack and not wanting to have to bug other peers in the classroom to get it out for me and then them not have their stuff out on time. I always had a 504 aid that would push me and not let me get away with half-assing things and making sure that I did it to the top notch and even beyond top notch because Mm -hmm. they knew that it was within me and my parents knew that it was within me and they never let me slack off. And so when I would see other people with disabilities when I was a peer teacher doing that, it just bugged me because I was like, no, you're fully capable of doing this. Maybe Mm -hmm. other people let you get off doing it because they don't understand, they don't want to understand but you're more than capable of doing some things on your own. And I don't think that you need to be given a lower attention, so to speak. And there was one moment where I was being a peer teacher one time. The student that I was working with had autism. He was very, very smart. He was doing his math and I had been with him for almost the entire school year. So I knew all of his tics that would make him mad, things that would make him happy, what Mm. would get on his nerves, like how to start the day off with him what to say, what not to say, what to do, and what not to do. And you learn that very quickly out of respect for them because you don't want to set them off. And it's very easy to set them off. And when you do set them off, it can sometimes be very scary. And I remember when I first started to be a peer teacher, my mom was like, I don't know if that's a good idea for you to be doing because what if they get like very temperamental and they go to hit you or they throw you out of your chair or something? 
And I was like, no, that's not gonna happen. Like, it's fine, I'm not scared, I'm not worried. But one time there was a new teacher. The head teacher was out on teacher leave. This substitute teacher was getting mad because I was just sitting there and I was letting him do his math work. And I wasn't helping him because I knew that he knew how to do it. And so I wasn't going to. And she's like, um, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm letting him do his work. And she's like, no, you need to be helping him. And I was like, me sitting here quietly is helping him. And she's like, no, your job here as a peer teacher student is to be in here helping, not just sitting. And I was like, you don't understand because you're not in this classroom every single day and you don't see these students every day, nor do you know the severity of some of these people's disabilities and what really ticks them off and what doesn't. So I'm not even going to have this conversation with you because you don't understand. And she just was super mad and she wrote me up and everything. And then the next day, the head teacher was there. And she's like, so what is this note about? And I was like, you don't even want to know. And she's like, well, tell me. And so I told her and she's like, oh yeah, no, that's ridiculous. And that teacher ended up trying to always get onto this one student's nerves because she just thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. And so all of us other students caught on to it. And we started to write down the things that she would say or do to get on his nerves because she knew that it would. And she didn't care. And she thought that she just ran the classroom. And she ran the student and everything. And I was like, that's not okay. So we ended up getting her fired halfway through the school year. Because I was like, that's not okay. I'm not going to put up with that. And then there was another time, because I was over five different students. Because my senior year, I had the opportunity of either graduating early or becoming a peer teacher. And so I had five different students. And one day I was in class with one of them in their U.S. history class. And she also had autism. The kids around her were taking videos of her on Snapchat and laughing at her and making fun of her. And I turned around and I said, how would you like it if I filmed you? And I put it on my social media for a bunch of people to laugh at. And they instantly just froze in their tracks. And I was like, it's not funny. You're not better than her. You're not cooler than her. Knock it off. It's not funny. Throughout the entire rest of the school year, they were always friendly to her and always nice to her and never pulled their phone out again in front of her. there's common sense of respect and the same thing goes on social media people will do anything to get a joke and get a like and I see that all the time in my comments and my favorite thing is to delete the most ridiculous rude cruel comment that has over thousands of likes and then I just delete it because I'm like I'll give you your moment because apparently you need it but it's not going to last for very long and I get that a lot of people that put those kind of comments and those kind of actions out there are hurting themselves. And it just makes me feel really bad that -hmm. they don't have any other outlet to let that out. And it has to result to bring other people down to their level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've definitely learned by living and are able to really be an advocate for so many others that are in the same boat or coming up in your way and finding ways (laughs) to get by as well. I really appreciate that. And speaking of that, I know that you said at one point you were a motivational speaker, but you never really either liked it or enjoyed it. You said that you felt like it was more of an obligation. Do you think that being an influencer, it's a bit better that you get to express yourself through your passion and also be a voice for others? That is a really good one. I still get asked to be a motivational speaker a lot of the times, and I just turn it down because it's still something that I just don't enjoy doing. And even just being on social media, I don't even like doing voiceovers or like talking 
in my videos. That's why all the videos always have some sort of soundtrack over it. And every once in a while, my management team will have me do some sort of voiceover and I'm dragging and dragging <laughs> and dragging to have to do it because I just, for me, I feel like I already put so much out there on social media and to be put in another vulnerable situation where I'm going to get made fun of because I know I have a speech pediment and because I say words funny or I talk a little bit too fast and I stumble over my words and stuff like that. Or I, sometimes I say the wrong words when I'm trying to say something else. I know that I'm going to get called out or made fun of. And so I try and keep that to the bare minimum. And that's why I don't really use my actual voice. And I try and just use the text boxes and stuff like that and hope that the message gets across in that way. Well, Gabe, you could have fooled me because here I am thinking about how articulate you are and I could not detect a single bit of the speech impediment. Could have fooled me. <laughs> well, gosh, there are about 2.6 million people that follow you on TikTok because they love seeing you succeed for the most part. And so how does it make you feel that you've been able to touch that many people? That's like, whoa. When was it that you realized that you were inspiring other people? Honestly, it was just around this time a year ago, after I got married to my husband, I posted a clip of our wedding video. And to this day, it has, I think, 87 million views. And we went on our honeymoon to New York. And everywhere we went, we were constantly getting stopped and saying, hey, you're that guy from TikTok. Hey, you do your makeup on TikTok. Hey, I just saw your wedding video. Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then I hit a million followers and then I hit a million point five and then I hit a million point seven and then I hit two point million and then I hit 2.5 and now I'm at 2.7 and it just continues to grow and it's always just a huge thing to get over that you know there are millions of people that are watching and it's also a very humbling moment to know that it is helping millions of people and that a lot of people watch my videos just to start their day out to get themselves out of bed. Yeah. Or to get themselves through a hard time or to kind of uh, Malibu don't eat that <laughs> goodness <laughs> she almost ate my airpod um, but um it's just so crazy that people love and respect my content that they want to follow for the journey and that even their kids are interested or that their grandmas are interested and that it's just out there for the world to see and that it's helping it just means the world to me yeah, you did speak a whole lot about the bullying that you've endured in the past. So how does it feel now that you've set your mind to things? You've accomplished so much. We haven't even yet talked about your snack of a husband. We'll get to that in a moment. What would you say to those that are in a place where they still feel like they're getting bullied and letting things get to them? What kind of advice would you give to those people? Well, like I said, social media has made it fair game for anybody to say whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want. And I'm 23 years old and I'm still getting bullied online, in stores, whatever it may be. I'm human. It gets to me all the time. And there are some days where I'm bawling in my bed at night because I just don't want to even post anymore. But mm -hmm. I've made it my job and I just go back in the next day and put a smile on my face and just keep going. And sometimes I don't want to because it's hard and sometimes the things that people say I'm like how could they even get to that point that they would even have my whole thing is nobody truly knows a person until they lived a day in their life 
-hmm. and nobody is ever going to live a day in my life without arms and legs the way that I do so people can say what they want to say but they're never going to know me and they're never going to know what it's truly like to be me and until they do I can't blame them and I can't fault them for them wanting to say what they want to say it's their life and it's my life and I'm not going to continue to let it bother me as much as I used to yeah let success be your best revenge I suppose (laughs) all right now on to the snack of a husband because you're coming up to a year anniversary is that right yes so tell us anything that you want to about how wonderful he is Adam and I met on Tinder. He likes to say that he got the first message in, but it was definitely me that got the first message in and I had the receipts. And leading up, my dating experience was never the best. It was always guys that were just trying to say that they either dated me or try and get in my pants and take advantage of me. And so I kind of was getting really fed up with the whole dating scene because I didn't want just a hookup. I didn't want to be taken advantage of. I didn't want just a one night stand. I wanted a mutual connection. I wanted somebody that I could fall in love with and that would see me for me and just love me for me. Leading up to meeting my husband, I had gone on a few dates trying to like test out the waters again and see what I really wanted. And I had written down in my notes what I saw for myself in a future spouse and what I wanted for myself five years from now and how I was going to attain that, and what I was going to do on my end to get there. And I needed to first be open to the idea of just letting things flow naturally, and not push for it, and not give up too easily as well. And so when I swiped on my husband, I just instantly knew that there was some kind of connection, and that he was going to be some big person in my life, and I had no idea that he was actually going to be my future husband. We had our first date a few days after talking and texting, and he took me to a coffee shop. And for me to go on a date, I have to be completely vulnerable because I need help getting into people's cars. I need them to buckle me. I need them to be okay to push a wheelchair. I need them to be okay to be seen with a person with a disability and to really take that on. And so when it came to Adam, he took me on this date where... We went to this coffee shop. It was not just an ordinary coffee shop. It was a coffee shop where you play games. And I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And so I was getting all nervous. We walk in and he's like, hey, do you have a cup for him to put the dice in? Do you have this for him to put his cards in? So he was already thinking of everything to make it feel natural as possible, which made me feel really good. And then my sister at the time was serving an LDS mission. It was the time where she calls once a week. And so I ended up answering. And my mom and my aunt were both on the phone too. And so I was like, oh, this is awkward. You're meeting my date for the very first time. Adam just instantly connected with my mom and my sister, which was a very big deal to me. And then he started to drive me home. And I was like, well, it was really nice seeing you and hanging out with you. And he's like, oh, we're not done hanging out. And I was like, oh, we're not? And he's like, no, I still want to hang out with you. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then at the time I was living at my brother and my sister-in-law's house and I was babysitting my kids part-time. And my sister-in-law was like, are you going to ask him to stay for dinner? And I was like, no, I'm not going to ask him to stay for dinner. And she's like, okay, then I will. And I was like, oh boy, okay. And so then my nieces and nephew were like jumping on top of him and everything but he was jumping right in, which was also a really big deal for me, was for somebody to connect with my nieces and nephew. And then he ended up staying until two in the morning. 
and then he had to work the next day which was really sweet of him and then he came back the other day after he had to work and ever since that day we were inseparable but then we got to a point I think like two weeks after dating and I was like all right I need a break it's not you it's me like we've been dating for a minute I need my space I hope you need your space and he's like well did I do something wrong I was like no I just I'm not used to this kind of attention and he's like oh okay so I go back home and my sister-in-law is like are you stupid you finally have a guy that's interested in you and you're gonna turn him away and I was like it's just for a few days and she's like no I'm calling him and telling him to come to dinner (laughs) and I was like okay you do that (laughs) and sure enough he was there for dinner and then um he tried to ask me to be his boyfriend a few months later and I told him no and he's like no and I was like yeah no and then I go home and I tell my sister-in-law and my mom and once again they're like are you stupid you have a guy that's finally interested you're not gonna let him be your boyfriend and my mom's like he's your boyfriend you bring him to everything he's your boyfriend he's like but he's not my boyfriend and she's like he's your boyfriend and he's like he's not my boyfriend and my mom's like you need to stop being dumb he's your boyfriend I was like okay so then we were on a date and I was like so do you maybe possibly want to be my boyfriend and he's like oh so when it's convenient for you you want to be my boyfriend and I was like yeah see you're catching on and then he proposed to me in October of 2020 and then we got married last year in June and we are now coming up on our first anniversary oh my gosh that is so beautiful so he actually restructured a makeup vanity so that it would fit your needs better right he did when we first started dating he lived in this grungy nasty apartment total nasty bachelor had and everything and I was like this is so gross we need to get you a home and so I was already looking for apartments because I was eventually going to move out of my brother and my sister-in-law's house. I had found an apartment that I liked, but then it wasn't something that was going to line up with him. A few months into dating, I had told him that I was looking for apartments and he gave me like his puppy dog eyes and he's like, well, if you ever want to be like roommates or anything, <laughs> we could totally like move in together. And I was like, right, okay. <laughs> and so then I started looking for apartments for the two of us. And I found one that was in Salt Lake City. I pretty much changed his entire world because I had him get a new apartment. I had him get a new job. And then we moved in together and I was doing TikTok here and there. And I hadn't really picked up or anything, but I really liked doing makeup on there. And I was doing my makeup in the bathroom on the shower bench and the lighting was awful. And so then I switched to a shelf that I had in the bathroom which was also awful lighting. And so finally he's like, I'm going to get you something. And I was like, oh, okay. So then my birthday was right around the corner and he surprised me with a vanity and a ring light and a new makeup palette and a mirror and all this stuff. And he's like, I just really want you to be able to dive into it. Because when we first started dating, he wasn't actually a big fan of me wearing makeup. And there was one time we went on a date and my makeup was pretty bold. Mm. And he's like, are you really going to go out like that? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, that's kind of a lot. And I was like, if you have a problem with this, then you have a problem with me. If you have a problem with me, then we're not meant to be in because this is me. Mm. And he's like, oh, okay. I just never saw myself as dating somebody that's a guy that wears makeup. And I was like, well, I'm not your average guy. So either take it or leave it. And he's like, oh, okay. 
and it took him a second to come around and he's like oh I actually do like it and now there's times where I'll glam up for TikTok videos but by the time he gets home it's already all off he's like (laughs) why did you take it all off I wanted to see it I'm like oh sorry (laughs) yeah you've got some really great looks you're able to do a lot of those renditions really well and I love your wigs you've got a nice selection (laughs) of wigs (laughs) it's a bit addictive isn't it (laughs) you cannot stop I tell you what does a normal day look like in the life of Gabe when you're not posting when you're not on social media I'm usually spending time with either my dog that's in the background. My dog. We just got her a month and a half ago. Or I'm with my husband or with my family. And yeah. Well, Gabe, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.